Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we parse through the weekly decisions being made by our political leaders that impact the Black community. You ready? Let's do it. On this week's episode, we discuss... Justin Trudeau finally offering real support to Black Canadians. Aaron O'Toole's pitch on ethics. The Canadian Labour Congress's push for more support for workers. The Raptors' failure to secure the bag. Netflix and cuties. Punisher patch police officer. Civil unrest around the world. And plenty more. Well, in the biggest news for Canada's Black community this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced $221 million for the first ever Black entrepreneurship program. It's a partnership with banks like RBC, BMO, Scotiabank, CIBC, National Bank, TD, Van City, and Alterna Savings. The majority of the funding, or $128 million, is from the aforementioned Canadian financial institutions, with $93 million being invested directly from the federal government over a four-year period. The funding includes up to $53 million to develop and implement a new national ecosystem fund to support Black business organizations across the country. It'll help Black business owners and entrepreneurs access funding and capital, mentorship, financial planning services, and business training. There's also up to $33.3 million in support through the new Black Entrepreneurship Loan Fund that'll provide loans of between $25,000 and $250,000 for Black business owners and entrepreneurs. The Government of Canada is also partnering with the same financial institutions I mentioned before to make up to $128 million in additional lending support. And finally, up to $6.5 million to create and sustain a new Black entrepreneurship knowledge hub that'll collect data on the state of Black entrepreneurship in Canada and help identify Black entrepreneurs' barriers to success as well as opportunities for growth. The hub will be run by Black-led community and business organizations in partnership with educational institutions. This is a very big deal, and I'm so glad that the Prime Minister listened to the Parliamentary Black Caucus and other Black leaders. Let's remember, Trudeau said he'd take the summer to come back with concrete solutions to combat anti-Black racism, and clearly, he's delivered on a solid first step. We've got Black leaders like Nadine Spencer, president of the Black Business and Professional Association, calling this a game-changer for Black business owners who have struggled with getting access to capital and loans. I know all about that. My friend Meryl Africa, president of the Canadian Association of Urban Financial Professionals, or COFP, said, quote, it's better than what we've had in the past. So I think it's a good start and it's a good way to gauge whether or not it's going to be enough. So it's great that the Black community is appreciating this announcement. What have the opposition parties been saying? Well, Jagmeet Singh's NDP is basically saying this is a good first step as well, but they're still putting pressure on the government to release plans around justice reform, which is another major area requiring reform. The Conservatives, well, 
I haven't seen anything from them. I guess they're focused on other things. Oh, well. I do have some reservations, though. One thing is that, in truth, even this government, this Justin Trudeau government, has been slow to get funding out the door for Black initiatives. So while I'm clearly happy about this, I hope the money doesn't flow as slowly as the $25 million that was announced in 2017 did. Because if I'm not mistaken, that money hasn't even started flowing yet. Or if it has, it just started, like just now. And we're three years later. I'm also really concerned about all the idiots who don't understand why this is needed. And so they're shitting all over it or undermining its value. This is literally what will lift many black Canadians out of poverty. It will create jobs and opportunity. It'll help divert youth from street and gang violence by providing them opportunity. Other groups and communities have been getting investment for years. And this will grow Canada's GDP for everyone. So what's the problem? Honestly, this is the epitome of killing two birds with one stone. Obviously, we need to pump more money into entrepreneurship. And there also happens to be a community that's been deeply disenfranchised by the COVID-19 pandemic. 100%. Win, win. Aaron O'Toole is pitching the federal conservatives as an ethical government in waiting. I don't know how he's going to do that, but don't take my word for it. Just, just, just listen to this, okay? There's a highly popular article by a publication called the TIE. They're based out in BC that tabulated the 70, that's seven zero abuses of power by Stephen Harper and his team over their 10 years in power. The same team that Aaron O'Toole was also part of. And I'll remind you that even through those scandals, Stephen Harper wasn't doing anything to help those in the middle class or the poor. Here's just a few of those examples. On parliamentary ethics, for example, Harper was found in contempt of parliament for refusing to disclose information on the costing of programs which parliament was entitled to receive. The Harper government became the first in Canadian history to be found in contempt. Oh, but they really care about respecting the institution, right? Tony Clement, who was a minister, a senior minister in Stephen Harper's government, lied and blamed Stats Canada for killing the long, the long form census. Under fire for conservatives killing the long form census, former industry minister Tony Clement falsely stated that Stats Can backed the idea and assured the voluntary substitute would yield valid statistical data. Neither was true, and outraged Stats Can sources confirmed it. By the way, <laughs> A few years later, Clement, who was married at the time of the story, was exposed for sending dick pics and nasty messages to some random person online over the course of three years, who turned around and tried to extort him for money. He had to no. On the environment, the Harper government also decimated the aquatic science libraries. The downsizing of the federal libraries included sudden closing of seven world-famous Department of Fisheries and Oceans archives. Scientists, patrons of the libraries who witnessed chaotic chucking of rare literature called it a book burning, which it was, with no logical purpose other than to restrict environmental information. The Harper government claimed vital works would be digitally preserved, but never provided a plan for cost or for doing so, nor any proof it actually happened. And by the way, no scientist that have been interviewed by the Taini believes that digitizing would have or could have replaced what was lost. On immigration, the UN blasted Canada's treatment of immigrants. Changes made to Canada's immigration and refugee system under Stephen Harper were investigated by the United Nations Human Rights Committee, whose report blasted how thousands of migrants are detained indefinitely without due process, many for over a year or more, as well as poor mental health support for those incarcerated. 
Well, I don't know if this is news, but we've known about this since Canada's support of Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo yeah, yeah, Bay. that's true. And it doesn't end there. On election fraud, first off, they tried to make it harder for people to vote since they know that the more people vote, the tighter their chances of winning become since their policies don't actually help the majority of people. They only help the rich. And then this happened. The conservatives ended up being convicted on a robocall scam. There was a conservative operative named Michael Sana, and he was given jail time for his role in the robocall scam. The judge indicated more than one person was likely involved too. In another court judgment in a case brought by the Council of Canadians, the ruling said the robocall's operation was widespread, not just limited to the Guelph writing. Donald Segretti, who did dirty tricks for the Nixon White House, told a Canadian reporter <laughs> his skullduggery didn't go so low as to run schemes sending voters to the wrong polling station. So let's let's be clear about that. The Conservatives, they wanted to win the election so bad that they used robocalls to send people to the wrong polling stations. And somebody who worked on Nixon's campaign said they didn't even go that low. That's I don't know what to say about that. But this is the conservative party that they were dealing with, right? So again, for them to be saying that they are ethical, they're an ethical government in waiting, it's bullshit. There's 70 ethical lapses in total from that government. So I do welcome you to take a look at that article included in our feed. Moving on to the economy, Stats Canada reported Friday that the country gained back 246,000 jobs in August, but the country's still down 1.1 million of the 3 million jobs lost over March and April. One of the largest unions in the country, the Canadian Labour Conference, is pushing the Trudeau government to make more progressive changes to our safety net. As we told you about a few weeks ago, the government is putting in place a revamp system during COVID that will be voted on September 23rd. But the Labour Congress wants that system to remain in place even after COVID is defeated. Congress President Hassan Youssef said many workers and families wouldn't have remained financially afloat if it hadn't been for programs like CERB and the wage subsidy, underscoring the need for the ongoing support. He also said the Labour Group will be pushing the government on skills and apprenticeship training, particularly to help youth, and a strategy to help visible minorities and immigrants more easily access federal unemployment benefits. I'm here for it. What are your thoughts, Patience? 100% I'm here for that. Like, people don't recognize that Canada was built as a social democracy, right? Built kind of to support people when, Mm -hmm. when times get tough. And we've kind of been slowly kind of walking back from that, trying to move closer and closer to this liberal perspective that really leaves people mm-hmm. to take care of themselves. I think the more support and we can offer way, the people, the better we will be. When Patience just said liberal, she meant economic liberalism, not political liberalism. Those are two different things. So in this week's Black Blackity Black News, there's a lot going on. So we've already spoken about the $221 million that is dedicated to Black entrepreneurs in Canada. And I really hope that everyone is keeping their eyes peeled for when various elements of this huge announcement will become available. But we, we had a little bit of a loss this week. The Toronto Raptors lost Game 7 this week, and it was sad. Very sad. 
What was much sadder was the way that audiences responded to oh, some of guess. the players. Was there racism involved? Well, of course. On both Change.org and GoFundMe.com, there were campaigns to get Pascal Siakam sent back to Africa. We've spoken about this kind of ambiguity and, and hatred towards Black bodies from sports audiences before, but I just thought it was worth mentioning because these Change.org campaigns and these GoFundMes were posted by people who live in Mississauga, in Toronto. And in Brampton. I didn't even know that. So we shouldn't think that these things are too far away from us. We're steeped in this culture right here in the GTA. There's been controversy around this Netflix film called Cuties. Cuties tells the story of Amy, a young daughter of Senegalese immigrants struggling to find her place growing up on the outskirts of Paris. This film has been accused of basically being child pornography and of normalizing pedophilia. People are so disgusted that they are calling for a boycott of Netflix until they remove the film from their list of offerings. Maimouna Dukure, the film's director, said in an interview with Netflix that the movie incorporated elements of her own childhood in its portrayal of Amy's struggles between the two distinct modes of femininity. One dictated by the traditional values of her Senegalese and Muslim upbringing, the other by Western society. Dukure has said that the idea for the film came to her after she attended a neighborhood gathering in Paris where she saw a group of 11-year-olds performing a, quote, very sexual, very sensual dance. She said that she spent a year and a half doing research and meeting with hundreds of preteens to prepare for the film. Funny enough... In France, where the film was released earlier in theaters on August 19th, Cuties did not stir what, much controversy. In, in France? Well, I, when that bad boy came <laughs> out in the United States, <laughs> the hashtag cancel Netflix has trended on Twitter with parents, politicians, and conspiracy theorists calling to remove the film or even get the Department of Justice involved. Members of Congress have gone as far as asking Netflix to remove it from their offerings. Last month, Netflix apologized for the artwork it created to market cuties to streaming audiences after many criticized it for inappropriately sexualizing the film's young stars. And I don't know, Curtis, I haven't really taken a side because I'll be honest with you, I always want to support a Black woman who's telling her stories. But I feel like this is... A, an instance where the right has stepped in to take a stance on something. I mean, maybe not the right, maybe it's just everyone, but the right has been really, really kind of strong with this and saying, no, like we can't allow this to be like, this can't be accepted in as mainstream media. This is horrendous. And this is not what we do here. Yeah, and I, I, um, I really appreciate I that. I haven't watched it either. And I don't think I will. And if it's being driven by conservatives, like this is good for conservatives. <laughs> Like, I, I'm on board 100%, because seriously, when does it become okay for children? I, apparently, there's a scene where there are little girls, like, showing their bare breasts and things like that. Why would anyone think that that's okay? We're, we're literally moving what should be on, what should be relegated to the dark net to Netflix? And then I also, I don't know if this is true, so forgive me if I'm saying something that is false, but... I heard that one of the directors ended up being actually charged and jailed for child molestation. 
Oh, whoa. Okay. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that this is an attempt to normalize pedophilia and it's, there's a massive pushback and like patients said, and like I've already said, we are here for it. Yeah. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. A Toronto police officer has been ordered to remove a Punisher patch from his uniform. The logo of the Punisher, which is believed to represent a vigilante crime-fighting character from Marvel Comics, has been adopted as a pro-police symbol in recent years. Ben Spur from the Toronto Star tweeted about it shortly after the image was shared on social media, stating, quote, has a different ring to it than to serve and protect. Seriously. I mean, when I saw the story, what literally popped in my head was, I'm sorry, are you the Punisher or a public servant? Toronto Police spokesperson Megan Gray told the Star that the officer wearing the patch has been identified and he has been directed to remove it immediately. I have a series of questions for this. <laughs> go, May I? go for it. Why, as a police officer, do you feel the need to add things to your uniform to clarify where you stand? Second, you are already in a uniform that a large majority of Indigenous and Black people find immediately triggering and frightening. Why do you have to go this far and become the <laughs> Punisher? When you stick those patches on your uniform, who is your audience? Who is looking at your uniform, looking for some symbol of what you're already, of what you're not already connoting? Your uniform already highlights the fact that you are on a certain side of this. Even good cops are struggling under that premise, right? That they are wearing a uniform that denotes that they are part of this kind of oppressive system. And a lot of them are struggling with that. You feel the need to add an additional symbol of being pro-police when you are in uniform? Clueless. Clearly clueless. But I kind of wanted to bring something up, Patience. Um, I saw a interview on Global News. It was from back in June, but I only saw it today. And it was an inspector. Uh, it was an interview of Toronto Police Inspector Stacy Clark. And I, I listened to this interview and I thought to myself, "Damn, I think she should be police chief." Because Come on, Stacy. She adeptly, on the one hand, addressed what Black Lives Matter and the Black community and Indigenous people, quite frankly, have been saying about how we have been terrorized by police. Well, on the other hand, addressing that there are many police who want change to occur, but they, they're not able to bring it to bear. Yeah, we had um, Inspector Stacy Clark, who, who, you know, she actually came to tears talking about the experience she has as a black woman, as a black senior female police officer, and the fact that she is at the center of 
you know, essentially three worlds right now. She's at the intersectionality of being a woman, being black and being a cop. And she, on the one hand, can take off the uniform, but she can't take off her color of her skin. And she was crying about, she was trying to prepare her children for racism. And she was in pain, noting that it doesn't matter what she does. There really isn't any preparation. It just kind of has to happen. And she's very much looking forward to the time where conversations about racism to young kids aren't necessary anymore. So I just thought I'd bring her up to showcase the good officers, the ones that under, that truly understand. I mean, the entire interview was based on understanding systemic racism. She was very clear about the fact that it is real and it is here. Uh, she experiences it. We experience it. It's time for people to stop not understanding that. Yeah. So with that being said, I really think she should be police chief. Come on, black female police chief. That's crazy. I can't wait. I mean, look, the we had a black guy before. He couldn't fix things. So what do they say about black women having to clean up after black men's mess? Well, we clean up after everyone's mess, actually. Just I, thank, thank you for the correction. <laughs> so there are calls to decolonize our curriculum. I want to start talking through this next story by sharing what appears at the beginning of the CBC article where we found it. It says, quote, when Kiri Daniel of Parents of Black Children an advocacy group formed to support and address issues related to the success of Black students within schools, flipped through the pages of a booklet her daughter was working on throughout the school year, the mother said it broke her heart. What I saw was at the beginning of the year, when she drew herself, she drew herself as Black as she was. By the end of the year, she was drawing herself as white, or colorless even, with yellow hair and blue eyes. End quote. We all know and we've all heard stories like this. And we know that because Ontario's education system was designed in a period when the country was still colonized, the views, lessons, and history are all from a Eurocentric perspective. But I find this story to be just so powerful, a really powerful example of what is happening in the GTA right now and how young girls, young boys are seeing themselves as not worthy and and are trying to change what they look like and their identity on paper. And I'm sure that this has long-term consequences. So Parents of Black Children is calling for the decolonizing of the curriculum to essentially rewrite the entire curriculum, starting with a history course that really incorporates Black histories into world history. Any comments on that? Yep. You know, I I commend Carrie Daniel for what she's doing. Um, In fact, I'm actually going to be having her sit on an education panel later this month with Hair to Uplift Black Men, uh, where she's going to be going in depth on this very topic. So I look forward to hearing more from her. Moving to topics that concern the whole world, I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive on the relationship between civil unrest and pandemics. Because it's not over. As we enter the second wave and we're watching COVID cases climb, I wanted to connect some of the dots. Not sure how much you know about the Black Death. The Black Death, or the plague, peaked in Europe from 1347 to 1351. It was followed by popular revolts that shook authorities. 
There's evidence from five cholera epidemics that show social tension escalated during those periods and led to significant episodes of rebellion. Apparently, 39 rebellions took place before the five cholera epidemics and 71 after. According to the study that was done by a couple of professors in different universities across the world, including Japan and Europe, there is evidence to demonstrate that epidemics can disrupt civil society in three ways. And I wanted to bring this up because I think they're very much tied to what we're seeing right now. First, because policies designed to prevent the spread of disease can conflict with people's interests. And we've seen this, right, Curtis? There are policies that say, wear a mask. And then we see videos of people <laughs> flinging their masks across the street because they, they, they feel like that's a, a violation of their personal liberties. I had to check somebody in the hospital just on Friday, patients. In the hospital, man? Yo. Yo. Okay. So if there's anywhere you should wear a mask, it's in the hospital. So here's the thing, right? The screeners, you know, they, they make sure that everybody gets the mask. They have to put it on that kind of thing. This guy was a contractor though. And I was actually with a patient at a desk to get that person registered. And there were people waiting around for their appointments, kind of like a doctor's office, right? And this guy is asking the attendants for some sort of information. For some reason, the attendant, and he didn't have his mask on. For some reason, the attendants did not tell him to put his mask on. So there are people who are kind of like worried, including this one woman who says, listen, I, I have pre-existing conditions. Please put your mask on. So now I, and by the way, the two attendants were women, right? And it's mostly women in the area. So I, as a big black man, I have to jump in now, right? Yeah. She's like, can you please? And I'm like, I'm like, sir. You should have taped it to his face. You should have taped it to his face. Like, what? Are you kidding? I was like, sir, I need you to put your mask on right now. This guy's trying to walk away. And he's like, I'm not doing it. But because my voice is deep and kind of scary, he did put it on when he was further down the hall. But this, this is what it is. People who are not listening, who are not taking this seriously, and they feel like everything's okay. It's not the case. And there's so much more to come. Right. So first, it's I said, because policies to prevent the spread of disease can conflict with people's interests. Second, because the pandemic's impact on mortality and economic welfare can worsen inequality. And we've seen this clearly, right? Yeah with the number of people and the the types of people who have lost their jobs versus the number of people and the types of people who have not lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. The number of people who would automatically qualify for EI, not really being given anything until CERB was announced. Like the inequality is just like blatant. So those two. And then third, due to the psychological shock of a pandemic, it can lead people to believe irrational narratives regarding the spread of disease. We've seen plenty of that. All of the conspiracy theories about the connection between 5G and coronavirus and the chip. And and again, I'm, I'm not sharing my opinion on any of those things, but I would prefer to just focus on what is happening here and now which is the COVID-19 pandemic, which has millions of active cases, but I digress. But I find comfort in research that shows me that this is just another pattern, that this happened with cholera, that this happened with the plague, 
that this happened with the Spanish flu and that we're merely repeating what human beings do when we're not too sure of what's happening. What do you think? Yeah, no, on the one hand, I totally agree that understanding that this has happened before and paying attention to how we've responded to these kinds of pandemics historically, it does lead to the development, I'll say, of more confidence, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, what's really scary is that there were, so, you know, even with all the advances that we've made in medicine, in science, in intelligence, there are still many people who don't want to use any of the three. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I wonder what the, I mean, listen, I think I, think I saw a, a poll the other day showing that a third of Americans aren't willing to take the vaccine when it comes, which means that the United States and therefore the world, if the United States is allowed, or if U.S. citizens are allowed to go to other countries again, which means the world is fucked. But, and the, the, the their case count was actually 6.4 million. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to take a vaccine and you are the global superpower. Not for long. Right. I mean, but like, even if they don't leave the country, Curtis, if they open up their borders and people start entering and then going back to different places in the world, you know, because they have world conferences, they have, you know, the UN and the World Bank, all of these international organizations have offices in New York. I hope that that's just a poll that is doing a pulse check. And I hope that maybe they can do some. So they have to change a lot of like fundamentally, they have to change some things about themselves before at the very least, they can even be taken seriously again. And it was funny that there was a a friend of mine, you know, I posted about attitudes about the border being closed on both sides of the border. There was a poll that came out from, I believe it was Ecos and Associates. And um, basically 88% of Canadians want the border to remain closed. Only 33% of Americans want the border to remain closed. And, you know, obviously all of us, or the majority of us, the overwhelming majority of us are like, yo, keep that shit closed. There was one girl who said, "Well, I have a boyfriend in the United States. He's a healthcare worker. He's taking things seriously. Why can't he be? Why can't he be allowed to come? There should be more empathy." It's like, well, I think people would be more empathetic if the United States was, you know, people were just taking this more seriously, and they're not. That's a dumb excuse, though. That's a dumb like. What do you mean, my boyfriend? Nah, it's a really dumb excuse. So questions for the audience. Did you cry after game seven? (laughs) We really want to know. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis. So subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drift Deal. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett, who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E, for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 